As commented on by Dr. Sperano earlier in the program, one of the most common and controversial situations in current oncology practice is the patient with a node-negative, ER-positive, HER2-negative tumor. I met with Dr. Robert Livingston to discuss how he approaches this challenging situation, and he began by putting this scenario in perspective. The patient is a very common patient, the most common patient we see, ER positive, HER2 new negative, node negative, middle-aged or a little bit older. She comes in, she's seen someone already in the community who says, you need AC followed by Taxol, usually, and then we'll give you some hormones. And the story, of course, is not that simple at all. This patient two years ago is somebody I would have treated with CMF if her tumor was bigger than a centimeter, and I would have trained my nurse that, you know, based on randomized trials by NSABP and others, that this makes sense, SWOG itself. But now we have, I think, really pretty compelling data from PAIC and the NSABP with at least one independent data set from Kaiser to suggest that you can use Oncotype DX, develop a profile that will separate patients into three groups. One group doesn't need chemotherapy and they're 50% of the patients with a low score. A second group has a high score and sometimes it's very surprising you wouldn't necessarily predict it on the basis of clinical grounds. And those patients really need chemotherapy and benefit from it in a big way. And interestingly, the chemotherapy was CMF. And then, of course, there's this intermediate group, which is the subject of the Taylor X trial that we're all trying to participate in, a study that's going to require 11,000 patients to be screened in order to get 2,500 on study. For the woman who's got the intermediate score, and she's going to be randomized, yes or no, for chemo, What are the clinical situations where you would like to have the assay done? Would you like it on all your patients with ER-positive, node-negative disease, or just specific ones? No, it's really that woman who's got a tumor that's bigger than a centimeter. She's got a tumor that's called intermediate or high-grade. As you know, grade is not terribly reproducible, unfortunately. And she's a woman who is, let's say, between the ages of 50 and 70, If the woman is over 70, I'm going to be much more inclined to treat her with hormone therapy alone unless I have a red flag. If the woman is under 50, I'm going to be much more inclined to treat her with chemotherapy plus hormone therapy unless there's a red flag. And in both cases, I think what you're trying to do is to integrate the clinical reality of the patient with what you're doing for the cancer. Now, you mentioned hormonal therapy, and I'm curious how you approach that decision in the postmenopausal and premenopausal patient. Well, I think for postmenopausal women who do not have contraindications, hormonal therapy today should be an aromatase inhibitor. I think that the data are in, and the follow-up on the exemestane trial that was presented at ASCO is just the first evidence. We're going to see more evidence that there is ultimately a survival benefit. Unfortunately, there is a fairly substantial number of women who either have a relative contraindication to an aromatase inhibitor because of pre-existent medical problems like osteoporosis or painful arthritis, or who will not be able to tolerate aromatase inhibitors. And the incidence of arthralgias and myalgias reported in the clinical trials is vastly, vastly underreported. In my own experience, probably 20% of patients that you start on an aromatase inhibitor will have to go off that drug because of the problems with their joints. But for postmenopausal women, you know, the rule, I think, should be use of an AI. How would you compare overall the tolerability, putting aside serious complications, 
of aromatase inhibitors versus tamoxifen, just in terms of how often you see people bothered by it, whether it's mm-hmm. arthralgias or hot flashes, et cetera. In postmenopausal women, tamoxifen is better tolerated. In premenopausal women, there are a lot of problems with tamoxifen, and I think it's kind of a toss-up. But of course, the only way you could use an aromatase inhibitor in a premenopausal woman would be to do something to knock out her ovarian function, and right now that's experimental. When you do use an aromatase inhibitor, which sounds like it's most of the time, what do you do when the patient gets to the five-year point? At five years, based on the NCI Canada trial with letrozole, I am telling patients we have evidence that after five years of tamoxifen, people do better by receiving an aromatase inhibitor. We're now trying to find out if after five years of an aromatase inhibitor, they're going to do better with its continuation. I do tell patients that we don't know the answer, that it is not unreasonable to consider continuation of the aromatase inhibitor, but outside of a clinical trial, I talk to them about it. But if they say, well, what do you think I should do? My answer is, I think we should stop at five years of the aromatase inhibitor and wait for more data. For the postmenopausal woman who has a relapse with hormone receptor positive disease, if you take out certain individuals with potentially life-threatening visceral metastasis, the initial treatment that one should offer probably is an aromatase inhibitor. We're doing a trial in SWOG, which is actually an intergroup with NCI Canada, where we're treating those patients with an aromatase inhibitor plus or minus Faslodex or Fulvestrin to see whether we can do better. But I do think aromatase inhibitor therapy is probably the appropriate frontline therapy for these individuals. Having said that, there are a lot of women who get their aromatase inhibitor, benefit or don't benefit, progress... And doctors often forget that that patient never had tamoxifen or the patient had tamoxifen six years ago. And those patients will often respond to tamoxifen. That trial combining anastrozole and fulvestrin, I think, is really fascinating. Could you talk a little bit about the presumed mechanism of anti-tumor action of an aromatase inhibitor and fulvestrin and why the thought was that maybe they'd be synergistic together? We know that the aromatase inhibitors, of course, block the production of estrogens in postmenopausal women because the only way you can make estrogen as a postmenopausal woman is through the enzyme aromatase taking circulating male hormone and converting a proportion of that circulating male hormone to female hormone in the fatty tissues of the body and breast tissue itself. So with aromatase inhibitors, we knock production of estradiol and related compounds down 90 to 95%. However, the other well-known mechanism of resistance is not estradiol itself, but the estrogen receptor. And it's possible for the estrogen receptor to mutate or change such that it is sensitized to recognize tiny amounts of estrogen, such as the amounts of estrogen that we see in the presence of an aromatase inhibitor. So the logic then would be to give an agent that not only binds the estrogen receptor like tamoxifen, but can actually downregulate the estrogen receptor, which at least in the preclinical systems is done very nicely by fulvestrant. So that was the rationale for putting the two together, plus there was evidence from some mouse models from Angela Brody's group to support doing it. In a way, that kind of leads into the issue of the dose and whether there should be a loading dose of fulvestrin. We are using the loading dose in the trial. What exactly is the schedule that you're using, and do you also use it in a non-protocol setting? Let me answer your second question first. Yes, I do use it in non-protocol setting. 
we're giving 500 milligrams on the first day, so that's two doses, basically. Two weeks later, uh, patients receive 250. Two weeks after that, they receive another 250, and then they go on a monthly schedule at 250. Now, having said that, Neil, I am still not sure that these doses of fulvestrant are adequate. There's some very interesting work done by my colleague Hannah Linden, L-I-N-D-E-N, and presented at the last ASCO with estrogen-labeled PET scanning. And what they saw, these were patients in Seattle, what they saw in these patients who were receiving fulvestrant on the loading schedule was a high proportion of individuals who failed to block uptake of the labeled estrogen into the tumor, even in the presence of fulvestrant. Furthermore, these same individuals had complete blockade of estrogen uptake into the uterus, the normal target organ where you would expect selective uptake of estradiol. So it well may be that the reason fulvestrant has not been a better drug, you know, because in preclinical systems it ought to be the answer, that the reason fulvestrant hasn't been a better drug is the drug is not reaching the target at sufficient concentration in people. What's your experience been with fulvestrin in a non-protocol setting? How is it tolerated, and what's the anti-tumor effect that you've observed? The drug is generally pretty well tolerated. The patients, by and large, if the nurse is skilled, and that does make a difference, by and large, the patients don't seem to mind the injections very much. And, of course, their patients have already been through a fair amount in general. In terms of efficacy, we have actually, and again, this is primarily Hannah Linden and me, have actually anecdotally treated a number of patients who were progressing on an aromatase inhibitor with the combination, continuing an aromatase inhibitor and adding fulvestrant for that same rationale I just went through with you in the first-line setting. And our impression, this is soft, not based on a randomized trial, blah, blah, our impression is that the proportion of clinical benefit is much higher than one would expect with fulvestrant alone. But that has been our tendency, to use the fulvestrant in combination with an aromatase inhibitor rather than giving it by itself. So in that situation where you continue the aromatase inhibitor and add in fulvestrant, which of course is also being studied in clinical trials, do you use a loading dose with the fulvestrant? Yes. Makes sense. Getting back to the issue of adjuvant hormonal therapy, you talked a little bit about the issue of postmenopausal women. What about premenopausal women? How do you approach those patients, particularly in patients with node-positive tumors? Well, another very good question. Right now, I'm telling those folks, if you remain premenopausal through chemotherapy, the standard treatment is tamoxifen. We would certainly be willing to give you tamoxifen. However, since we know that aromatase inhibitors are better than tamoxifen in postmenopausal women, since you have positive nodes, if you continue to produce estrogen and have periods after your chemotherapy, it would not be unreasonable to suppress your ovarian function, either removing your ovaries or putting you on an LHRH antagonist and treat you concurrently with an aromatase inhibitor. And I have patients where I have done that. If you make that choice and you don't remove the patient's ovaries, then I think you're obliged to follow FSH and estradiol, or at least estradiol, because there are people on LHRH antagonist therapy who will not 
suppress their estrogen production. And that's the one thing you want to be sure doesn't happen. You want to be sure you're not giving an aromatase inhibitor that is worthless. And I think that's something to be emphasized in terms of oncology nurses. I mean, if for some reason you run across a patient who's on an aromatase inhibitor, they mention that they've had a period, that's not a good thing. Yes. In fact, Neil, I think the really common situation, and there was an editorial about this, I think with Dan Hayes writing it in JCO, the really common situation is the other situation where it's a premenopausal woman, she goes through chemotherapy, she stops having her periods, she's placed on an aromatase inhibitor. We're all doing that. And then the patient who initially had a lot of hot flashes and night sweats, she may not have any period. She may not have any vaginal spotting. But suddenly, hot flashes and night sweats get a lot better. Patient feels a whole lot better. And we all kind of pat ourselves on the back and think, well, boy, we got through that. That patient, I think fairly frequently, may have resumption of ovarian function. She's not ovulating. That's why you're not seeing any kind of menstrual cycle. But she's making enough estrogen to get rid of those menopausal symptoms, and she's making enough estrogen to overcome the aromatase inhibitor. So those patients, I think, need to be followed. And at a physiologic level, why is it that aromatase inhibitors are so effective in postmenopausal women but not effective in menstruating premenopausal women? My understanding from the endocrinologists is that the aromatase inhibitors simply do not affect the pathways that lead to estrogen biosynthesis through the ovaries. I want to also ask you about this issue of NAB paclitaxel. I think there really are two issues here. One of them is, let's assume that they're equivalent. Should we therefore simply allow NAB paclitaxel or abraxane to be substituted for paclitaxel. As you know, there was a randomized study that compared NAB paclitaxel to paclitaxel on an every three-week schedule in women with metastatic breast cancer, published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, very reputable trial. That study shows a magnitude of difference in terms of response rate and time to progression, which is fairly similar to the magnitude of difference that was demonstrated in ECOG 2100 between Taxol alone and Taxol plus Bevacizumab. Yet the Taxol plus Bevacizumab trial is accepted with great enthusiasm, I think legitimately, and presented, as you will recall, at a fairly frenzied special oral session of ASCO, while the trial involving NAB-Paclitaxel versus Paclitaxel, although it did manage to make it into our prestige journal, is basically disregarded. I think that it is a plausible hypothesis that nabpaclitaxel could produce, in conjunction with other treatments, a higher pathologic complete response rate than standard paclitaxel. So I do myself think those questions are worth answering and may be answered more expeditiously in the setting of neoadjuvant therapy where the endpoint pathologic complete response can be obtained quickly rather than in an adjuvant trial setting where to get the answer is going to take a period of many years. In my own practice, I'm giving patients paclitaxel because of the cost differential. It's an enormous cost differential. If cost were not an issue, I would stop giving paclitaxel today and substitute NAB paclitaxel for it. There's so many times this issue of cost comes up. I remember it came up when the AIs came out even. It was, you know, the pre-Avastin days when our financial things looked a little bit different. But, I mean, do you bring up the possibility of NAB paclitaxel to your patients and say, well, here's this drug, you won't need pre-medication, you'll be out of the office quicker, but I'm not recommending it because it's going to cost more money, or do you not even bring it up? Don't even bring it up right now outside the context of a clinical trial. 
This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Breast Cancer Update.